Welcome to the P3 Podcast. The ProNoctis Performance Podcast is the place to be if you're interested in topics such as mindset, coaching, personal development, elite performance, and leadership development. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the P3 Podcast. Fantastic guest today. Somebody I've known for six or seven years now and has gone on to do some amazing things. And I can bravely and confidently say that is going to go on to even better things moving forward. That's for sure. <laughs> Amy Cocaine, England Rugby. Welcome to the P3 Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Now, it's great to catch up with you. It's been a while. We've been meaning to do it for a long, long time. And I think that the conversation we have over the next 30 to 40 minutes will probably explain why. Because, A, we've both been really busy, you especially. But so much has happened and so much has changed for the positive. And I think it's just an amazing story you've got behind it, which I know our listeners will be really, really interested in. So, Amy, just give us a bit of an overview of where you're at in terms of your career. So we were talking, obviously, just before we started the podcast in terms of you're 24 now, you're 50 odd caps. You know, you played in World Cups, World Cup finals. You've won numerous Grand Slams, which as a Welshman, got to bite my knuckles at. But, you know, <laughs> they're trying their best to improve. Let's put it that way. But give us a little high view picture of your career today. Yeah, so like I said, got 50-odd caps now for England. Got capped back in 2015, so I've been playing for a few years. What club are you at at the moment? I was playing for Harlequin, been there for the last two seasons. It's been really good, actually. A good change for myself. The setup we've got is like second to none in terms of women's rugby, where it's at the minute. We strive as a club to make it an environment that creates the best people, the best team, to ultimately go and win, but to have the best environment. So, yeah, it's been a really good move for myself. Yeah, that environment's so important for creating that culture, isn't it? And then what you find is, and I'm sure you've seen it, as you've created that environment and culture, as you sign new players, they just naturally merge into that culture in terms of that classic statement of, this is just what we do around you. We're on time. We look after each other. We work hard. We train hard. We win together. We lose together and we crack on. Yeah, it was a bit of a weird one. I was at Wasp before and I was looking to move on and didn't really know where I wanted to go. But I kind of always written Quinns off. I don't know, there's kind of the stigma around, oh, Quinns, no one really likes them. And obviously I spoke to my dad, who you know very well, wise old man that he is. And he was just like, Quinn's is kind of like the Paris. Obviously we've got the military connection. He was like, everyone hates the Paris, but when you're in the Paris, you love it and you really buy into it. And it's like everything. So kind of took that on board. Obviously went to Quinn's and I'm now one of those people that everyone hates being at Quinn's. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, it's, no, it's definitely, it's a good place to be. What is it about the Quins then that potentially people don't like? Is it jealousy? Is it envy? Is it because you're London-based? What do you think it is? I think it's like we're very lucky and we're very well supported by the men's side, I suppose. You know, we get to use the same facilities. We don't have to pay for kit. We occasionally get, like, say, trainers from Adidas, who's one of our sponsors. And, you know, we've still got some teams that pay 100 or 200 quid for kit, gym membership, match fees stuff like that that just seems so ancient now like so backwards to where we should be so I think it's more like we're the ones that have and there's people that don't have it and think we're maybe spoiled by what we've got but always the wrong way of looking at it really. You get that in all teams in all sports don't you and, and obviously I want to talk a little bit more about the sport so for those that probably don't know that much about your background I think it's a fascinating story especially the elements that I know about it I know your dad got an opportunity to transfer from the Royal Air Force over to the Australian Air Force. Uh, sorry, the New Zealand Air Force. New Zealand. Uh, yeah, yeah, New Zealand. Yeah. yeah, when you were quite young. How old were you when that move was happening? Yeah, I was nine. So kind of in that weird age. I was not really young, young, not really old. So weird age. Yeah, it's still a difficult time, I would have thought. Though. How did you find the move? Because I'm sure you obviously still left friends, etc. Was it difficult or straightforward enough for you? It's just one of those things, I think, as kids. Me and my brother moved like loads we were moving every couple of years anyway but it was just quite funny because when we moved to where we were at before we left so we moved to Litchfield my dad was like this is it we're not going to move you from here you know we've bought a house now this is going to be stable platform 
no more moving. And to be fair, we were there for three years before we moved to the other side of the world. I'd never even heard of New Zealand, didn't know where it was in the world. My dad actually told me, oh, there's no flies there, because the day he told me there was an annoying fly buzzing around the living room. <laughs> I hate flies. And he was like, yeah, we're moving to New Zealand because there's no flies there. Then obviously we got to New Zealand, they've got like worse stuff than we've got here. <laughs> but you look back on it now and it wasn't a massive impact as what it probably potentially could have had. My experience of traveling around as well every couple of years is you do get used to it. And I think there's a sweet spot, isn't it? If it was maybe two or three years later and you're starting to get roots down with your friends and your clubs and things like that, it might have been different, but it seemed to work out. And it's a very different culture to what you were brought up. Was that quite evident or was it just at the age of nine? It was just, well, I'm just cracking on with it. This is just what it is. I think I adapted probably the quickest and the most out of my family in terms of little things like when you go to school in New Zealand, you take your shoes off before you go in the classroom because you're not allowed to put shoes in the classroom. Well, at the school that I was at, and it was quite a common thing. So you just get used to being barefoot a lot. I know that's the thing that most people know about New Zealand is like being barefoot. So just little things like in our driveway, and our house was all like gravel, and I could just walk on it as if it was like the softest, flattest ground ever. And then you've got like my mum and dad that look like they're just walking on needles and just couldn't hack it. So little things like that. I also picked up the accent when I was living out there, which I've now lost again because of that. <laughs> yeah, just kind of try to embrace the culture as much as possible. Like my brother even tried to learn the Māori language and stuff like that was one of the lessons he took at school. So yeah, I think we really like embrace the culture as much as we could really as a family. That's a big part of moving around, isn't it? Especially a big shift like that right the way down south to embrace the culture because then I think the locals appreciate that, you know, in terms of that blending in and they have that mutual respect for you and respect in their culture. And I think that ties quite nicely in with your success over there within rugby. So you went from being Dustin Villa Junior Girls goalkeeper so you're obviously quite sporty to then starting to play rugby over there. Was that the first sport you played or did you play other things? Yeah, rugby and football was like the main thing. So when we were in England, I played football on the Saturday, rugby on the Sunday. As much as my mum hated driving me all around <laughs> uh, the country all the time to do that. So yeah, rugby and football was like the main thing. And then when we moved out to New Zealand, I just stuck with rugby because they both played on a Saturday. So you couldn't do both. Luckily, because I'd be so rubbish at football now. <laughs> but then when I was out in New Zealand, I picked up like javelin and stuff like that, which was something completely different. But it got too difficult to try and do javelin and rugby. So I had to kind of choose. And The New Zealand rugby sort of culture and infrastructure is so famous literally around the world in terms of they literally live and breathe it. Is that what you experienced as well? Yeah, definitely. I think we lived in some really small little places that, you know, they still had a rugby club. And you have like the massive rivalries. Like I lived in a place called Fielding and you either Fielding Old Boys or Fielding Yellows. And the rivalry was just as big as any, say, football rivalry over here. Rugby is just such a way of life over there. And I think everyone just has to be a part of it. You've got no choice. Yeah. Do you think that's played a part in your success in terms of having that experience quite young on? Yeah, definitely. And I think when I was out in New Zealand, you could play women's rugby from the age of 13. If you were big enough, and stupid enough, you could do it. So I was exposed to women's rugby at such a young age as well. Like over here, you can now play at 17, but before it was 18, I've only changed it in the last couple of years. You know, I had a good five years on people over here being exposed to getting smashed by black ferns at the age of 13. You know, you have to learn how to look after yourself when that happens to you. So it's definitely shaped who I am and definitely the rugby player that I am. 
I would imagine though, at 13, obviously, you're big enough, strong enough to compete with the women. Obviously, you wouldn't have played. But I can imagine you might or might not be there quite physically, but mentally, it would have been a huge journey in terms of building that psychological fitness, psychological strength to just go and compete. Because I can imagine, again, with a strong culture within New Zealand, that there's just no backward step on the pitch. It's just you either step in and play your part or you just stay off the pitch. Yeah, definitely. You know, you always try and convince maybe the people around you or even try and convince yourself that, oh, no, I am good enough to play at this level. Like, it'll be fine. But I do definitely remember being a bit like, well, women's rugby, like, only played against boys my age and schoolgirls rugby up until that point. So definitely remember being nervous for the first game. But then, like you said, you've just got no time to even take a backward step. You're either in or you're out. And luckily, I chose to be in and went from there. Brilliant. So just fast forward then. So obviously you're the English girl in New Zealand, which you're either getting bantered for or people forget very quickly. And then obviously you're playing at a really high standard over there. You develop year on year on year. And then was it the England touring team where you played against them and then there was a conversation after it, which obviously triggered where you are now. Did I get that part of the story correct? Yeah. So I was 16 and I got called into the, there was like a trial camp. So they invited loads of people to kind of try to be in the Blackburns team. And my coach at the time for my school team, he was Welsh. And he kind of went to me, oh, well, you're English. So, you know, if you play for the Blackburns, that'll be it. You won't play for England. Have you ever thought about that? Would you rather play for England? Like He didn't really know where I sat on that. And to be honest, I'd never even thought about it because at that point in my life, I wasn't thinking about international rugby. <laughs> it's years away. I don't have anything to worry about. And I went, well, obviously I'm English, so I would love to have to play for England, but I just can't see how that would even be a thing because I'm obviously living in New Zealand. And at 16, there was no way I was ever going to be moving back to England anytime soon. And he kind of just went, all right, leave it with me. We'll see what happens, basically. And then luckily that year, England, yeah, were coming over on a tour. So Jonesy, my coach, set it up that our schoolgirls team went on a rugby tour to the same place where the England girls were going to be playing. And then one day he said, you come with me, we're going for a walk. And we ended up in a Starbucks and there was the current coaches of the time. So Gary Street, Smithy, Nicky Ponsford, who's still the head of performance now. And one of the English players who was actually a Kiwi. And we were met in a Starbucks. My, so my coach had sent them like a highlights reel of my rugby through my women's rugby and my schoolgirl stuff. And said, this girl's English. She'd like to play for England, but she lives out here. What's the situation, basically? So I just met up with them, had a bit of a chat about it, what it would look like. And then I think it was less than a year later, I was back in the January of, or the December of that year, I was back in England <laughs> at Hartford College to do the dream of playing for England. And then in the February, got my first 20s cap. So it all moved pretty quickly, really. Yeah, rapid, wasn't it? And it was in that period, obviously, where we met for the first time. So just rewind a little bit. So obviously, you've had the conversation. They found a way of providing an opportunity for you to come back, which was obviously college placements, make sure your schooling was okay and your qualifications were up to scratch, but also providing the opportunity for you to continue to develop with the rugby. And then obviously, there was conversations around university with Loughborough, which obviously come off as well. What was it like for the family, do you think? I can imagine the answer to this. I've never really spoke to your dad about it. But in terms of that decision of your dad sat there with your mum having a conversation over beer, thinking, right, do we move back and give Amy the chance to England? Are we ready to move back? Do you have any awareness of that conversation? Well, I always say it's not my fault that the whole family moved back because <laughs> my mum and dad had built their like dream home, like bought a plot of land, built their dream house. We were living in their dream house in New Zealand, like nice bit of land, which subsequently had to sell to move back to England. But originally the plan was I would move back to England by myself and kind of just live with family because all our family still lives over here in England. We didn't have anyone out in New Zealand. So I was just going to go to Hartbury, be a boarder. And then when I had like holidays and stuff, just going to stay like with my nan or something. But then my brother, this is who I blame for the whole situation. 
he was at uni at the time and he went, well, if she's moving back, I want to move back. I want to join the British Army. So then both kids were moving back. So then the parents kind of had no choice. They're like, right, well, there's no point us being over here and then being over there. So we'll all move back. And that's what happened. Your dad's definitely got a part to play in that for the guys that are listed. And your dad's an absolute rugby fanatic, isn't he? So the fact of there's no way on this earth was he going to stay in New Zealand while his daughter's got a chance of playing for England. Especially the frequency of England playing now and again when the groups are, you'd be spending months, months and months in the UK. So, uh, but always put the blame on your brother for sure. And when we've yeah. had conversations over Christmas about it, it's always your brother's fault. So you arrived back in the UK, you family moved back to Litchfield, obviously the area where you were from. Your dad manages to get a job back in the Air Force, which is obviously where I met him. He actually came in as my boss at the time. And my first knowledge of you was going for a coffee. Guess where we went? Went to a Starbucks for your dad. And yeah. <laughs> that must have been a New Zealand thing. And he said, by the way, my daughter's come over. She's at Harpery. She's got a good chance of playing for England one day. Which would be really good if you meet her. And I think it was probably six or nine months later, obviously once you'd settled in and you might have been on a school holiday and that, where you come onto the RAF camp to see your dad. And we sat down for half an hour or 40 minutes just seeing what you wanted to achieve and trying to build out a roadmap, didn't we, in terms of what would it look like, mm. what would I have to do, and how do we break it down into some logical steps? And you dropped it in just before we come on the podcast that you've still got that piece of paper. Yeah, it was in a notebook. I think you gave me the notebook. I turned up to your office and didn't have anything. So you gave me this notebook and it was written in there and I've still got it. Can you remember what some of the steps were in there? Yeah, so one was go to Loughborough Uni. One was just get selected for England, the senior squad. One was start my own wellness business, which hasn't quite done. That's kind of completely scrapped now. And then obviously another one was win a World Cup or get selected for a World Cup and then win a World Cup. So I've done some of it. Still a few more things that need to be ticked off. And we can talk about the World Cup now, because obviously you did end up going to Rugby World Cup as well fairly early on in your career, in all fairness, and you got mighty close to winning it, didn't you? What was your recollection of that World Cup as a whole in terms of an experience? Granted, it wasn't the result you wanted, but what about the overall experience? Yeah, I think if you take the result out of it, it was an amazing time. You know, you're so just in this bubble of rugby, and it was obviously an island, so we had lots of friends and family that could come over and kind of be part of that experience with you, which was awesome, because you're so close. Staying in uni halls, it was like flat, so we got quite close as a group as well. You know, we could cook our own meals, kind of have our own schedule, apart from obviously the training times and stuff. But in a World Cup, it's like a four-day turnaround, so you basically play a game, recover, train, play again. So it was a really awesome experience, but just that last final hurdle was still just that real big sticking point and still kind of leaves that sour taste in my mouth a bit. Even when people ask me about it now, I'm still a bit like, oh, I hate it, but... um, yeah hopefully this year we've got a chance to maybe change that yeah I think it's quite natural obviously you don't play at the standard you are without being competitive and I think part of life and journey and the experience is obviously the wins are sweet the losses really really hurt and you remember being hurt you use that to drive you forward don't you and then the next success is even sweeter yeah definitely and I think that's what makes World Cup so amazing is they only come around every four years so it's not like a club game if you lose a club game the next week you can put it right but World Cups are so far and few in between that you're dwelling on that loss. You could dwell on it for four years if you wanted to. Obviously, you try not to because that'd be a bit stupid and, you know, park it, move on, start the next goal. Is what it is, and I'll see how it goes next one. It is slightly different, I think, with elite sport where there's a big part of, you know, in the real world, in real life, is about accepting it and moving on. But I think in elite sport, you've got to accept it, but also remember how it made you feel. And there's a slight difference there, isn't it? Because you do need to have that fire in your belly to keep you pushing forward, striving for the next one and the next opportunity. So give us a bit of information on the next World Cup. When is it? Where is it? And how's the squad looking? 
in New Zealand, actually. So New Zealand are the ones that beat us in the final in 2017. So 2021 in New Zealand, September, October. Yeah, should be good. I'm in England camp at the minute. So we're still managing to train for all the random corona times that we're living through. Hopefully we can get Six Nations played, have some more game time. Should be in a really good place to have a good performance at the World Cup. Yeah, fingers crossed too. And it's great that elite sport can carry on through these times because it's obviously great for you guys with the big tournaments coming up, but it's also great for the fans to watch at home because no different to you or you're no different to us in terms of being at home all day can be a little bit monotonous, can't it, and repetitive. So having some live actual sport to watch at the weekend is fantastic. And I know you're a sports fan and you watch it yourself as well. So it's great mm. that we're able to do that. So World Cup coming up this year, but I think what I'd like to ask you about now is there was obviously a pivotal point. Well, there's probably been a couple over the last three or four years where you obviously went professional at one point. That was on a rugby football union contract to the RFU as part of your England setup, if you like. And then as it happens sometimes, because unfortunately there's not a finite amount of money, they have to prioritise, don't they? And then within a couple of years, they prioritised the Olympic Games again. So the sevens team and budgets got redirected, which obviously then took away your professional contract. And then you were looking at different avenues and careers and ways of literally how to earn a living. And you obviously made the brave decision to follow your dad's footsteps and join the RAF, which I know there was a few snags with, if you remember us having a chat in terms of, are you English, are you New Zealand, which one are you? And the old pen pushers were blocking a few things, but it was sorted in the end. How's that been for you in terms of a transformation from being a professional athlete to being in the Air Force? I think it's probably one of the best decisions I made, even in terms of my rugby career. Obviously, coming off the back of that 2017 World Cup and being contracted for that whole year, that whole year was just rugby, 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 rugby. And for it to not turn out so well at the end of it, it was kind of a bit like rugby's gone bad, so my life must be bad. So for me personally, it was just really important for myself. And it's not right for everyone, and I completely understand that, but I needed to have something outside of rugby. And just to kind of set myself up, my contracts aren't long-term contracts. I could get injured tomorrow and that would be it. I wouldn't be able to play rugby again. So I just wanted to make sure that after rugby, my life was kind of sorted and I had some kind of direction of where I wanted to go. And I'd kind of fallen out of love with the game. So I think having that time away... I needed to miss rugby and really come back like hungry and wanting to train and wanting to be the best I can because I think it had got to the stage for myself where I was like, I don't enjoy it. So I'm not trying very hard. So I probably wasn't putting my best foot forward and being the best player that I can. And you can't be like that when you're trying to play for England. You've got to be willing to give your best at all times, every session, turn up and be the best version of yourself, I suppose. And I wasn't. There was no way I was. So took a year out, did my officer training managed to make my way back into the England squad luckily and then subsequently now we've got contracts again so thankfully the RES have put me on elite athlete status which they've released me pretty much full-time for two years living the best of both worlds at the minute yeah it's great but obviously you've created that though by leaning forward and joining the RAF and putting your name forward to join up which arguably might have been a natural step with you know the background you've had in the upbringing and you've seen the lifestyle they have but the fact that they have that elite athlete status which for the listeners just means that basically get released from your military duties and you become a professional athlete and you can do it in any sport and obviously with Amy it's with rugby and they support you through everything you can but as soon as that moment where either you decide that's enough you want to stop playing rugby or your contract is finished then you just go back and join the RF and do your day-to-day job don't you which I know obviously Amy you joined up as an officer and you've joined the provost branch which is basically the RAF police it gives you so many opportunities moving forward post your career whether you play until you're 40 you can have a career in the RAF until you're 60 so I think that's what makes it really sweet and a sweet deal for everybody involved yeah definitely I can't really thank the Air Force and I say the public enough 
there's some amazing people that have put into place and put a lot of hard work to get me to the position where I am luckily enough to just play rugby essentially at the minute with that fallback of I've always got a career. One of my close mates, Lucy and I, who I went back to college with, uni with, she actually ended up doing the same. So I went through office training, Thomas Branch, but she still plays rugby essentially at the same level as I do. She still plays in the Premier 15. She plays for Wasps, but she has a day job. She does a full-on job and still has to try and compete yeah. at that level and I just like I'm knackered now just doing the training she has to do all that and then be head of security for a unit somewhere that just blows my mind I couldn't imagine doing that you know when you have those days where you're like oh man I don't know if I can do this anymore like I need something else and I think oh Lucy and I are doing that so um, yeah. Lucy's probably in a house iron in a uniform at the minute I'm all right I can go to the gym for half an hour and do some bench press it's fine <laughs> exactly yeah it's all about perspective isn't it i need to just remind myself of that a few times yeah, absolutely perspective it's massive so that's a great backstory to where you are and it's amazing you know you've got 50 odd caps now at the age of 24 but in one of the hardest positions on the pit you're obviously playing in the front row at hooker there which is physically and mentally demanding it's an amazing achievement amy and i've got no doubt you've gone to even better things so thinking about going on to better things training camp six nations and then you know the world cup in september october which let's hope that got a firm grasp on covid by then with the vaccines all rolled out and sorted out and we'll probably listen back to this at the end of the year and of course it was we were months off but what's the bigger plans moving forward have you got any sort of personal goals and ambitions that you want to achieve i've not really looked much past the world cup if i'm honest because the rugby players kind of live in this four-year cycle of world cups this year's kind of like the year, isn't it? So I haven't massively looked too much past that. And stupidly or not, I don't necessarily have much individual goals. Like I'm not sat here going, oh, I want to get to 100 caps or anything like that. Kind of all the success I get as an individual is all through the team. So I think right now, sole focus is purely on that World Cup, essentially. Yeah, and I guess, well, under caps could be a goal and, you know, it's achievable for you. But I think that with the having your head screwed on as you have in terms of, well, I'll just train well today, I'll get picked for the next match and then I'll just roll match to match. Don't worry about that. If that happens, then great. But it's all about the next game. And I suppose it's the equivalent of your Olympic year this year, isn't it? You know, it's once every four years, all eyes on the prize and building up towards that and reassess at the end of the year. What about professionally then, RAF? So do you see yourself going in full time at some point or is it a case of just going to play it by ear and see how your career is going and see how the conversations happen with the Royal Air Force? Yeah, no, I definitely see myself having a career in the Air Force, in the police, definitely. The reason I chose the police is I just think it's such a diverse role. You can go down so many different avenues and I genuinely find it quite interesting, the stuff that you can do within the police. I hope to have a long career and do some cool stuff there as well. And rugby would just be the thing that I used to do. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. I don't think I can let you go without on a chat about the competitive family. And you and I had some conversations not so long ago, actually, on Instagram while it was happening live, I believe. But obviously, your brother joined the army, so he got his wish too. Your dad's ex-army and Royal Air Force and New Zealand Air Force, so competitive nature's there. I'm not sure how competitive your mum is, but I bet it's in there <laughs> somehow. Obviously, you've got a, a Christmas tradition in terms of the bench press challenge. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that, about what you have to do? Well, I'll tell you how it came about. With England, each year we have fitness testing, usually on about the 3rd of January or something like that. And it's like a two-day camp. And one of the tests is your max bench press. So just one rep, how much weight you can bench. It was Christmas Day. It must have been about three or four years ago now. Me and my dad were just talking about it. And he was like, oh, well, I bet you I can bench more than you. <laughs> because, as you say, we're so competitive. That was it. We were in the car down the rugby club having a bench off, essentially. My brother was away at the time, so he wasn't there. But it's quite funny because when we were driving there, he was like, 
you know one of us is going to get hurt. We're not going to come out of this and be fine. One of us is going to get hurt. So we went down the club. Dad put his back out, obviously. So he was the one that got hurt. But yeah, then every year it just kind of escalated. So now it's your max bench press straight into your max press ups. We kind of brought that in because my brother's a lot bigger and stronger than me and my dad. So we're there benching like 90 and he's benching like 140 before he might be rubbish at press ups. But he's actually all right at press ups as well. So yeah, that's kind of the competition. It's been about four years now, yeah. And actually, it got quite a bit of traction on Instagram this Christmas, didn't it? You were Instagramming live in and commentating around it where people sat at home, they'd had their breakfast and opened their presents and they were waiting around for lunch. Well, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to tune into the cocaine bench off, aren't you? That's what you're going to do. Even I did. Remember having a chat with you and you had a big debate on your Instagram lives, right? Who should go first? Because historically you guys have gone first and then your brother was due to go at the end. But he knows what the target is. So it's always easier when you know what you need to hit. And he never maxed out or pushed himself. I think your Instagram vote unanimously said that he had to go first. And to see him in pain was brilliant, wasn't it? Oh, I know. When he'd actually pushed himself and done as many press-ups as he did and was just collapsed on the floor. <laughs> that was probably better than winning, to be honest with you, because uh, that was the first year he's had to, because he can normally bench nearly what we can bench and press-up combined. So I think this year combined, I got like 148 or something like that, and he was benching 140. So then he would just have to get down and do nine press-ups and he'd yeah. win. Hence, we brought in the vote. That is the rules now. So whoever wins it goes first the next year. So he will probably forever go first. Evolving yeah. beast like it. And what's the punishment for the loser then? We don't actually have a punishment. We just have a rule that you have to get at least 100. So your combined total has to be at least 100. So like bench 70, do 30 press-ups or whatever. I'm still waiting for the day when my brother brings home a girl and we make her do it. And she <laughs> doesn't get to eat Christmas dinner because she didn't get 100 points. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. I do remember that one. Yeah, so if you don't score 100 points, so you combined kilograms bench pressing and your number of press-ups, you don't get to have dinner. That's great. But I've just got images in my mind and I'll throw it out there that the loser has to wear like a giant turkey suit while eating dinner or something, a big inflatable thing. You know, something ridiculous like that. That'll really drive you and your dad to compete, especially as he gets a little bit older as well. And you can banter him about that for sure. We'll have to come up with some form of punishment. I'll do that next year. <laughs> hey, before we wrap up then, I normally do a quick fire questions. Just answer the first thing that comes to your head and we'll just go from there. So I ask all the sporting people that come on the podcast the same sort of questions. Who's your sporting hero? Mm, Kelly Holmes. Ah, nice show. Didn't expect that one. Your non-sporting hero? Cool. Probably my dad. Why not? We'll go with my dad. Oh, legend. Yeah, legend. I'll tag him in this when we start putting it on social. That's for sure. Yeah. You have to listen to that bit. So you've retired from England. You've got X amount of caps and a few World Cup wins, hopefully. You're allowed one big dinner. So you're allowed five guests. Me and your dad are already at the table, by the way, because obviously we're VIP. Okay. Who's the other three? I'd say the Queen. I want to meet the Queen. So she's still going to be alive whenever that happens. And she's going to be there. Adele. I love Adele as you know, the singer. Why Adele then? Oh, I love Adele. I'm like obsessed. Absolutely <laughs> obsessed. That's like my pre-like music as well is like Adele. Everyone's like, oh, we need like pumped up music. I'm like, I just need to listen to some Adele. I just love it. The chasing some pavements. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, right, one more. I should really pick someone quite interesting, shouldn't I? We'll go Kelly Holmes. Why not? Considering she's my sporting hero. It'd be quite nice to talk to her, I suppose. I tell you what, I couldn't have predicted that. So the Queen, Kelly Holmes and Adele were a round table. That would be. Out of all your England teammates, then, who's the biggest hooligan on a night out? Uh, probably Marley Packer, yeah. <laughs> Stay away from him. Biggest like rogue night out. <laughs> if you could achieve one thing in your rugby career, what would it be? 
when I woke up. Yeah, I think it was going to be that. We already set that one up. Okay. And the next question was going to be around what's your biggest goal, but I think that ties in quite nicely with what we just talked about already. And everybody from Pro Noctis, you know, that's supporting you and cheering on all the way, even though I'm Welsh. But the guys in the team support you. We wish you well in September and October over in New Zealand, but also for the Six Nations coming up, Amy. And we really appreciate the time. I know I know you've got a busy diary at the moment and you've got to go off and practice your bench press ahead of Christmas already. I know that. So um, <laughs> thanks very much for joining us and hopefully catch up with you again soon. Yeah, that's awesome. Thanks, Phil. We hope you enjoyed the latest edition of the P3 podcast. If you'd like to engage further with us, then please come and follow us across all social media platforms. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. And of course, follow us on wherever you get your podcasts to be one of the first to be notified of any new content.